This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Welcome everyone to the latest episode of Tax Records, the podcast produced by the Hall & Wilcox tax team. My name is Todd Bromwich and I'm a senior associate and I'm joined by my colleague and partner, Frank Nobris. Thank you, Todd. It's a pleasure to be with you. The topic for today is all about the Australian Taxation Office's Top 500 and Next 5000 targeted compliance programs. Uh, And we'll share some of our observations from recent experience assisting taxpayers with such reviews. We've had a number of these reviews lately, so we thought it was an opportune time to speak to you about it. Frank, we spoke about the ATO's Top 500 and Next 5000 programs back in Season 1 of Tax Records. Could you briefly recap the programs and what taxpayers fit within these bands? Sure, Todd, and you're absolutely right. We did talk um, about these two compliance programs in season one, and I believe in our very first uh, recording. So um, uh, nice to uh, revisit this issue again. So uh, as you've already mentioned, the uh, top 500 and next 5,000 are two targeted ATO compliance programs. A top 500 taxpayer, there are a number of definitions of what a top top 500 taxpayer is, but it is a taxpayer or a taxpayer group that has either over $350 million of turnover, and that's irrespective of what its assets are, or conversely, over $500 million of assets, irrespective of what its turnover is, or a middle ground sort of position where the taxpayer has over $100 million of turnover and over $250 million in assets. The next 5,000 taxpayer definition is a little simpler. Uh, A next 5,000 taxpayer is defined generally as a taxpayer or taxpayer group that that has uh, controls wealth uh, of more than uh, $50 million. And um, uh, if that's the definition that applies, uh, my sort of reaction to that is I'm surprised there's only um, maybe 5,000 taxpayers who fit into that, that, that category, that there, there might be many, many more. And of course, Todd, um, as we spoke in the first uh, series and in the first podcast, the program really rests on and revolves around this concept of uh, justified trust. So uh, that reflects the fact that this is a, a proactive uh, approach to these taxpayers uh, by the commissioner. You know, it's a review of not only their compliance, but also their government governance uh, processes and procedures and governance attitude towards tax and uh, the sort of carrot for taxpayers uh, for being active and willing participants in this scheme is that if they do achieve a level of justified trust, uh, then they can expect uh, a lesser degree of ATO scrutiny in the future. Well, back in November 2021, the ATO published a findings report. Uh, could you give us just a bit of an overview of that and what that report identified as some of the key findings? Sure, Todd, and no, you're right. The, uh, the, the ATO uh, took a pause and reported on uh, the outcomes of its next 5,000 and top 500 programs um, back in November 2021. Uh, a pretty comprehensive report uh, from uh, the ATO, and I think they should be applauded for their transparency uh, in releasing those findings. But a couple of the key points, if I can summarise them, 
uh, were the ATO uh, had at that time conducted and seen through to their conclusion a number of these programs uh, for a number of taxpayers. Uh, they found that um, there was a, a sense of tax risk uh, governance and that there were processes, uh, but these processes were not necessarily uh, documented in a sort of guiding document uh, in, in, in many cases, if not most. Um, the ATO uh, found that uh, those taxpayers who tended to get, get through these programs uh, and not have any compliance issues or ongoing compliance uh, risks tended to be those groups that uh, documented their tax review processes uh, comprehensively, and also that um, uh, taxpayer groups who uh, had close relationships with their external advisors, both on the accounting and, and tax law side or, or legal side, uh, tended to make, uh, as you would expect, significantly uh, less uh, mistakes and errors uh, than those taxpayers who uh, did not. And if you'll just indulge me uh, for a second, uh, Todd, because uh, as you know, I, I do like stats and data, but um, the uh, report also uh, produced some, some some pretty interesting, what I thought, uh, well, I thought it was interesting, uh, sort of demographic analysis, uh, almost profiling what the uh, the typical next 5,000 group sort of looks like. And um, uh, based on the ATO's data and, and its analysis, the, the typical next 5,000 group uh, is a, a group comprising uh, on average uh, 16 entities, 16 different entities, uh, comprising seven companies and four trusts. Uh, a typical group would have a, a group head aged uh, 65 years or older. Uh, it would have 39 employees. Uh, it would have total income in the order of 9.4 million. It would have total wealth uh, in the order of 80.3 million. And it would have uh, income tax in the order of 700,000. So, um, so if, if you have a, a client who fits that sort of demographic uh, profile, then um, congratulations, you are a typical next 5,000 group. Thanks, Frank. And uh, you're not wrong, you do love a few stats. And it'll be interesting to see when they release these finding reports uh, year on year or uh, in whatever period they choose to see how that demographic changes over time. You, you can almost call me the Bruce McAvaney of tax when it comes to my <laughs> love of, of, of statistics and data. Yes, but it's carry on. Golden tonsils. Uh, no <laughs> doubt the ATO, though, has seen some uh, recurring issues uh, arising. You've got a fair sample size of you know top 500, next 5,000. Uh, do you have any sense of what those recurring issues are? Sure. Uh, no, and, and this is another element uh, of the report that was quite useful, and that was in, in identifying uh, some of the areas of tax where the ATO found recurring issues. And I think when I start reeling this off, it won't really come as a surprise to anybody that these were the areas where there were problems. But of course, um, Division 7A in a privately owned family group uh, has to be very carefully managed because there's a lot of risk and there's a lot of complexity and very often there are mistakes. Um, tax losses and especially the, the classification of capital losses as uh, revenue losses, and a related question to that, um, the, the characterization of a gain or of an amount as being on either revenue or capital account. And, and uh, you and I both know and have done a lot of work uh, trying to manage and advise on these issues, especially in the property area where, where this can be, the, the revenue capital distinction can uh, 
can be um, controversial uh, a lot of the time. Uh, some of the other uh, issues, again, none of which comes as a surprise, was uh, uh, poorly or in inadequately documented uh, intergroup or interfamily transactions. Um, and, you know, we know that this is uh, a, typic a typical feature of, uh, you know, privately owned groups. You know, your typical privately owned group, even if it's a very big one, uh, won't necessarily be applying the documentation and governance standards that you might see in a BHP or any other publicly listed company. Uh, things can happen a little bit more um, more um, uh, informally, uh, and uh, it's very often the case that that lack of formality and documentation has caused taxpayers to come unstuck. And of course, uh, probably the the issue that I've been banging on about for years and years uh, ad nauseum. Um, and that is the issue of uh, poorly documented uh, or uh, invalid or erroneous uh, trust resolutions. Thanks, Frank. Well, now we might get into some of the nitty gritty. If I'm a taxpayer, how do I know when a top 500 or next 5,000 review has commenced? How do I know I'm, I'm the subject of one of these reviews? And do we have a sense of what the initial correspondence is like? Is it standardised? Is it tailored? What does it look like? Sure. Um, so, Todd, I mean, I've, I've sort of come to facetiously refer to, um, to to these letters as your, you know, uh, welcome to the club letter. Um, and I've, I've said to a few clients, you know, maybe they should take it as a compliment that they've been um, that they've been picked as a top. We've made it. We've made it. To you've the top. made it. You've, you've you've made it big if you've received um, one of these letters, which I call the welcome to the club letter, and you know, it tends to be at least. Uh, from, from what we've seen, and I think our experience would be a, a reflection of the processes it would apply more generally. But uh, the, the initial letter tends to be, I mean, it is specific in the sense that it identifies the taxpayer and identifies the group and often identifies the relevant entities in the group. But it is general in the sense that it doesn't get into the specifics of particular uh, compliance points um, that um, that the ATO wants to examine uh, in more depth. So uh, you, you receive a letter, you know, welcoming you to the program, so to speak. Uh, the letter tends to outline uh, what the program uh, will entail and, and how the process will will go, and um, provide you with a, a, a rather charming little uh, diagrammatical representation of the process. Um, uh, outlining the, the various steps uh, that the client should expect uh, to unfold uh, throughout the the review process, uh, and and that is the, the, your sort of first bit of communication with the ATO. Generally, what happens after that is that um, you know, the process starts to uh, become a little bit more detailed, and the ATO starts to put a little bit more meat on the bones and, and ask you more detailed questions. And typically, what you would receive um, after that uh, initial, you know, welcome to the club letter, is a, a request, firstly, for uh, more information and, and you know what I might describe as you know source documents. So uh, often constitutions or trust deeds, etc. Um, you know, uh, the financial statements uh, and other related documents concerning not only the relevant taxpayer identified in the initial correspondence, but also uh, other entities that that taxpayer controls or has an association with. Okay, so if I'm a taxpayer and I get one of these letters, what should I do as a first step? Should I make a panicked call to one Frank and Opera's? 
Well, you know, um, one can rarely go wrong uh, by making a panicked call to Frankenopolis. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I think what what clients, um, taxpayers should should be doing uh, as a first step is most certainly. Uh, I mean, if this correspondence hasn't been received uh, by their their tax agent or external accountant um, to begin with, and usually usually it is, uh, but they should certainly um, bring their external accountant or advisor uh, into the tent, uh, and they should um, acknowledge uh, the ATO's correspondence. Uh, and usually, in this correspondence, uh, the ATO will identify the sort of case officer who will be managing. Um, managing the particular audit. So, you know, it may be Mr. or Mrs. Smith at uh, ato.gov.au. You know, I always think it's a, um, a good idea for a taxpayer to acknowledge um, this, uh, this correspondence and start at least an initial introduction to the ATO uh, compliance officer. And then I think um, what would happen then is that the um, the information, the relevant information uh, that will be requested uh, should um, should be compiled. Um, and uh, you, you should really, I think what I encourage taxpayers to do is to do their own review in-house. Uh, and and if, if the taxpayers um, are able to, assisted by an independent and objective um, uh, outsider or advisor, like a, a law firm, like us, or like, um, like one of our other um, professional colleagues, to sort of really do a review uh, along the lines of what the ATO would be reviewing uh, itself. So, you know, have a look at the source material, you know, do a bit of a sort of DD checklist on some key compliance risks. Uh, that's where the information the ATO has put out following its uh, findings on the report can be useful. Um, you know, think about where the exposures might arise, think about what some of the hotspots might be, and really get yourself prepared, you know, do the review that the ATO will be doing uh, in-house before you uh, unleash uh, all of that information on the ATO. Okay, so if there's an issue identified in the course of one of these reviews where, you know, maybe there's been some non-compliance or uh, where we think we have complied, but the ATO might disagree with the position we've taken, uh, what is a taxpayer's options uh, from that point? Sure. Well, there's always the option, Todd, uh, and, and this is certainly what we recommend, where uh, a specific issue uh, has been uh, identified. And if it's not clear that there is a, a high risk of non-compliance, uh, that the, I mean, we always recommend that taxpayers and their advisors in that situation, uh, you know, firstly, confront the issue. Um, you know, assess the issue, uh, uh, get a second view about the issue. And uh, if there is clear non-compliance, uh, then uh, the best thing for a taxpayer to do in that uh, case would be to address that non-compliance by way of a voluntary disclosure uh, to the commissioner, uh, which um, will or should have the effect of providing some relief from penalties. And when you are at this early stage of a review, um, uh, then the opportunity to, to make a voluntary disclosure will most of the time uh, exist. If there are issues where uh, the, 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 there may be a risk or the risk is appreciable, but there's no clear answer. I mean, an example of that would be uh, if there's an issue about treatment on a capital account where it may have been revenue account uh, or arguably may have been revenue account or, or, um, or the opposite. 
If it hasn't already been done in, in the front end, which uh, in a perfect world is what you would want clients to do, then I would certainly recommend that clients look to sort of shore up or firm up um, some of those um, potentially high risk and material tax issues uh, with more advice or with a reasonably arguable position paper. Doing that gives some support to the position that's taken or at least lets the taxpayer assess whether or not they should be making a voluntary disclosure. So Frank, usually in the course of these reviews, uh, our clients will be asked to provide documents to the ATO either informally or they may receive a, a formal notice to produce documents. Uh, what should taxpayers be aware of when they're furnishing documents to the ATO? Sure, and, and that's right, Todd. So as we've already said, um, you can expect to uh, be required or requested um, to provide documents at a couple of different stages. In the very early stage, you might be asked to provide base and source documents uh, like constitutions, trust deeds, financial statements, et cetera. Then once the ATO has progressed uh, to a more detailed review of that source material and base documents, uh, you might be asked to provide uh, more documents responding to more specific queries. Uh, and, and that may happen at a couple of steps along the review. So, uh, I mean, when uh, furnishing documents to the uh, to the ATO, uh, but of course, it's it's important to be um, open and transparent and to, to share documents that, uh, that the ATO is requesting. But we always uh, uh, urge taxpayers and their advisor or their accounting advisors to uh, be very careful and, and very uh, discerning in the material that is um, provided, especially if it is um, uh, documentation uh, that might um, comprise uh, advice and advice that might be uh, either legally privileged or um, uh, privileged, uh, having a quasi-privilege under the accountant's concession. Um, I mean, it, it's quite important you know, going through this process um, not necessarily that you will or can assert privilege over certain documents, et cetera, uh, at this early stage, but you certainly don't want a taxpayer or their accountant um, inadvertently waiving privilege, the privilege that would belong to the taxpayer as the client, uh, in circumstances where that might not be in the uh, taxpayer's long-term interests. So, um, you know, of course, I mean, the key message there and the bottom line point uh, in, in that discussion is um, you know, don't sort of just um, you know, hand over documents indiscriminately, uh, make sure that there's good control and good awareness and also um, some oversight of what is being um, what is being provided to the ATO responding to its in response to its requests uh, and what the implications for a taxpayer might be. Yeah, I mean, legal professional privilege is one of those things that I suppose we could probably talk to for quite some time. So I probably won't press you on that anymore and maybe save that one for, for the next season of uh, tax records. What about interviews? Because we've been to some interviews with our clients with the ATO uh, from time to time. Is it is it necessary for a taxpayer to attend an interview? And if they do decide to attend, I mean, how should they go about it? Yeah, well, I mean, so interviews with the ATO I mean, are never going to be a comfortable experience for taxpayers or um, or their advisors. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it always, I mean, it can uh, often be um, a pretty intimidating experience for a taxpayer to confront, um, even where uh, it might be 
completely uh, innocuous and um, they're, they're even where there is no element of um, of any sort of um, uh, you know, non-compliance, et cetera. I mean, it just can be one of those unnerving things to have to um, uh, be in an interview with the ATO. I mean, we have had some, um, some taxpayers, uh, and, and when I use that term here, I mean, you know, the actual uh, taxpayer client, you know, not, not the accountant and so on. Uh, but we have had a number of taxpayers who have, you know, quite willingly, uh, wouldn't say enthusiastically, but certainly um, embrace the opportunity to be uh, in front of the ATO and the, the ATO uh, people and, and um, to, uh, you know, show that they're uh, uh, nothing to be worried about, nothing to hide. They're there to be cooperative and transparent. Um, and, uh, you know, where, where the, the person is temperamentally suited to such an environment, that can, that can be... Um, that can be a good experience. It can be very productive. Uh, I've had a couple of taxpayers who have uh, just been the, the exact opposite. Uh, you know, ha have have um, have not wanted to attend uh, the ATO meeting, and despite uh, you know a clear explanation of everything that that might mean, have decided to to not attend and have um, instead uh, instructed their accountant or either us to attend the meeting on their behalf. Um, you know, again, uh, I mean, in, in a, uh, I mean, no adverse inference uh, should be drawn from a, a taxpayer's unwillingness to attend the issue, but that's not to say that it actually may not cause some adverse inference to be drawn uh, from their non-attendance. But um, I mean, at a more practical level, uh, you know, I think the, the interview can be a pretty, uh, I mean, is an important um, element and and part of this process. Um, you know, a, a lot does uh, does does I think um, a lot does turn on the what what comes out through the interview? I think it should be managed with um, with uh, you know some care and and it, and it should be managed carefully. Um, and my practical experience has been that typically the ATO will provide a, an agenda. Um, I do sort of urge taxpayers and accountants to um, you know uh, request from the ATO. Uh, more detail uh, in that agenda, you know, not necessarily so that every question is on, on notice, but um, so that there is clear indication of um, what uh, information uh, or topics will be addressed at the meeting, uh, if there are any documents that the interviewee will be taken to, uh, that those documents are identified. Um, you know, there is... Um, you know, it's not like a cross-examination. You know, it is something that I that that can be um, prepared for, and and um, where a taxpayer can uh, should and can be able to go in with their eyes open and um, fully armed with a good sense of what's going to be um, what questions are going to be put to them. Mm. So, what about the back end of these reviews? Uh, and say the ATO concludes their review of a taxpayer, they might, you know, they may not find any. Uh, explicit non-compliance. They may have just made some, maybe some comments on their on their governance processes and some recommendations. I mean, should that be taken as a as a clean bill of health? Can our can our clients rely on that to essentially say, well, there, there's no skeletons in the closet for those past years? Sure. Um, and and uh, Todd, we have had I mean a couple of matters now where we've seen these. Um, Reviews go sort of end to end, you know, right from the start to right to the very end, and uh, you know we have had some clients who have come through uh, with with no findings of any non-compliance or no findings of any material risks, 
Uh, sure, there were questions along the way that had to be addressed and reconciled, uh, but you know the, the ATO did um, conclude the review uh, with no adverse finding, if I can put it that way. Um, and I mean, you know, your question was, well, you know, ca can you then take that as a clean bill of health? Uh, I mean, of course, the ATO is never going to be absolute um, with with anything that it says or anything that it puts to a taxpayer uh, from the perspective of saying, well, you know, you know you're all good, we sort of sign off that everything is, is fine for, for prior years. Um, I mean, the, the ATO always, and, and I think quite properly, uh, you know, reserves the right to examine further further issues or, or if more information comes to light, if more documentation comes to light, or um, if uh, the taxpayer has not been uh, open and transparent uh, with the ATO in any way. And that's why I think it's important throughout the process and especially at the, the commencement to encourage clients and taxpayers to be as, as transparent um, as they possibly can. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's very helpful and I think it should give a, a client some confidence that their, uh, their tax compliance is sound and that they are a taxpayer who would fit within the justified trust category if they did come through a review like this um, and it was finalised with uh, with no adverse findings or if there were adverse findings if they were fixed along the way and there was evidence that these were there was sort of system change or process change to embed these um, new processes that would prevent these uh, these these issues from recurring uh, but of course it's uh, it, it's never never absolute during these reviews uh, the taxpayers are often you know, quizzed about their tax governance processes. Uh, and also at the end of the review, one of the outcomes that we see might be a recommendation to prepare a more formal tax governance policy to apply for the group. Uh, in your experience, what does this uh, look like and what do we do here? Sure, so you're exactly right. I mean, um, that, you know, this whole program, uh, you know, the, the anchor of it is, um, you know, the uh, the ATO's desire to um, encourage and engender better tax risk governance um, practices in you know the high wealth segment of the Australian taxpaying community, um, you know that is stressed at the very start of the program. You know it's stressed in the program's parameters. Uh, and you know, it, 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 there will in every review, at least every review we've had, when a taxpayer is asked to uh, outline, you know, what their tax risk uh, framework and process is. Now, the question or the response that we get, um, you know, every single time we ask a taxpayer, you know, to um, what we're going to say in response to the question about their, their their tax risk governance process i mean every taxpayer says uh you know that's why i've got an accountant and every accountant says well that's why they've got me you know and and, and um, i'm there to manage risks i'm there to identify risks and help the client to mitigate them um and you know that's why hall and wilcox and and our like exist so that where there are material tax issues they can um, seek further advice or a ruling or a reasonably arguable position from from us and you know i think the ato as the ato's own data shows um you know most private businesses would not document this uh, in the way that you might see in a more complex sophisticated organization with external shareholders like a like a listed company for example so i've never seen somebody have maybe there are but i've never seen somebody have a uh, 
formal documented tax risk governance policy sitting on the shelf ready to give to the tax office. It is important, however, you know, when you do get to the, you know, the back end of a review and when a review is concluded, um, you know, it's not a kind of, uh, it's, it's not mandatory, but there is, I think, a pretty strong urging uh, by the tax office that private groups who have been through this review try and document their tax risk governance processes more formally. And, uh, you know, in our practice, we've, as I said, not only have we gone through uh, the whole uh, gamut of the review process, but we've also got to that end bit where we've had to um, help clients to sort of formalise and document their tax risk governance um, policy. And, you know, I won't say that there's one document that's going to solve uh, the issue for everybody, or there's not going to be one document or one precedent that's going to be right for everyone. Uh, and I don't think either that it's it has to be a sort of over-engineered, um, you know, overly complex, uh, you know, very sort of, um, you know, uh, extensive sort of document. I mean, I, I think what what the ATO, I mean, my feeling is my personal opinion, you know, what the ATO wants to see people doing is, um, you know, having a clear sense of, um, you know, a few important things. The first important thing is, you know, who has the responsibility for managing uh, tax issues and tax risk. And I don't think that's only the external accountant. I think there is an expectation that, you know, the principles of a complex and high wealth group uh, will have um, a, a mind that is focused on tax and tax risk. I think the second important thing, uh, which um, relates to the first point, I hope hopefully doesn't undercut it, is that uh, you know, high complexity, high wealth groups should have um, strong, uh, trusted uh, relationships with their external advisors who provide support and specialist support um, when it comes to these tax issues. You know, the identification and detection process has to start, you know, within the group uh, and start with its um, immediate accounting advisors. But then when that has been identified, uh, there needs to be a team or a support network of people who can help guide clients through these risks. I think the third important element is that there needs to be a sense of, um, you know, key tax hotspots. You know, what are the transactions that we do? What are the issues that we do that, you know, might um, be controversial or might be a bit of a tax hotspot? You know, what is something where... Uh, you know, we could be the subject of some ATO scrutiny. There might be a transaction, there might be a, a history of intergroup loans, it might be a history of intergroup connections, it might be uh, having really old trust deeds in the group that no one's really read for a while and, you know, where there might be mistakes. You know, identify those hotspots and, you know, have a sense of materiality around the transactions that you're doing. And, you know, finally, I think sort of write that down and use it in a way that might be, it's, it's going to have some practical benefit, right? I mean, it, it should be, like I say, it's, I think it's something that you prepare to tick a box on a tax office letter to say you should have one of these things and then you stick it on the shelf and forget about it. You know, this is really going to be useful uh, if it's used as a practical document. And, and I think uh, what I would envisage and, and the way that we've tried to prepare them is that, it is something that people can actually pick up and use and go through as part of their, you know, quarterly financial reviews, as part of their tax preparation meetings with their accountants, 
uh, as part of their year-end consultations with their accountants and advisors and so on and so forth. You know, I mean, if this whole thing becomes just another kind of uh, tax document that you create to tick a box and nobody ever picks up again, then I don't know that this has really achieved much. Thanks, Frank. Some good practical advice to uh, cap off our discussion of the ATO's top 500 and next 5,000 targeted compliance programs. And thanks to our listeners for tuning into the latest episode of our tax records podcast series. We trust that you found the information useful and please reach out to our team if you have any questions. You can find uh, Frank and my details on our website, paulandwilcox.com.au. Uh, or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review and follow our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe on our website to be notified of new episodes. Mm -hmm.